Hello and welcome to another episode of The Grey NATO, a loose discussion of travel, adventure, diving, driving, gear, and most certainly watches. This is episode 273, and it's proudly brought to you by the ever-growing TGN supporter crew. We thank you all so much for your continued support. And if you'd like to support the show, please visit thegreynato.com for more details. My name is Jason Heaton, and I'm joined as ever by my friend and co-host, James Stacy. James, how's that uh, how's that cold doing for you this week? You know, between between the recording of of the previous episode and this one, uh, it's probably the sickest I've been in a couple years. I've actually been uh, super fortunate with my health. I haven't haven't been um like the colds, the flus, that sort of thing have largely dodged me. Yeah. Um but the last couple go arounds, maybe I've had two or three colds in the last 4 or 5 years. Uh, they've just hit a lot harder. I had a terrible one a couple years ago at Watches and Wonders uh, that ended Oof. up being a, like a fairly major sinus infection. Yeah, and this one wasn't nearly that bad. It also like didn't really respond to medication. You know, like the the stuff you can take to help you sleep, the Nyquils, all that. It's also you ever read the warnings on those things? It sounds like they're just going <laughs> to grind your liver into a little pulp and leave you dead yeah. on the street. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the thing that ended up working was just the Neil Med. The like sinus rinse. Oh sure. So stop taking the meds and and it, it kind of carried out for a day or two and then uh, so far you know a little congested today, but doing better and and thankfully sleeping a lot better than I was over over the weekend. So yeah, yeah, hadn't been sick in a while. I guess it happens to everyone. Got got a good, uh, good took a round out of me if I'm honest. But uh, back back and fighting and uh, kind of riding the high of today's episode. We just just got off the the call with today's guest uh, Carol Bashand and. It, it was awesome. I'm I'm really looking forward to being able to share this with the audience. Not not like our maybe the the usual guests, and like you point out in the talk, like in many ways the not the polar opposite, but the the polar opposite perspective on watchmaking than our previous guest in uh, Doctor Struthers. So a, a really fun one. Uh, other than that, I, I I really didn't get up to much because of the because of the cold. So I don't have a ton to kind of lean on. I watched a bunch of TV, got got to the season finale, True Detective uh, oh, season yeah. four, which is very much um, a, a topic of conversation in the slack. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I've, you know, enjoyed the season. Not, not sure I fully understand the route they took to end it, but that's okay. <laughs> and then other than that, I think the only other kind of news for me before we get it, because I, I really want to download on your winter camping. I, I lived vicariously through your Instagram post and really enjoyed it. But the only other thing for me is, you know, now that I'm breathing correctly, I'm back on the treadmill and uh, rewarding myself for nearly two months of using it now um, with a, a weight vest. So I've got a 40-pound vest showing up at some point from Amazon. Feel bad for the guy delivering it, but... Uh, <laughs> Maybe he'll wear it to the front door. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's been... I, we got a heavy box just before we recorded, and it turned out to just be a bunch of, um, like, magazines. So, oh. <laughs> uh, it wasn't quite heavy enough to be the weight vest, but I'm looking forward to that. It's been years I used to really uh, rely on a cheap Amazon weight vest for my workouts, Yeah, uh, like my home calisthenics. And I think this will be kind of a fun thing to add into uh, the treadmill, and we'll see what kind of speed and weight comfort zone I find to kick it off. But I'll keep people posted on that, as I know it, it can be kind of a, a point of interest for folks. Yeah, I've, I've debated going the weighted vest route, but um, in preparation for the fan dance, which I've talked about quite a bit now, um, you know, I, I really need to start putting some weight in a backpack and getting out kind of doing more some, functional that way. Yeah, some hill hiking and that sort of stuff. The idea of a weighted vest, kind of distributing the weight kind of around your whole torso is uh, definitely more appealing than, than sorting out a backpack and getting it to wear properly when you're out hiking around. Cause boy, it makes such a difference to, 
to add weight. Um, speaking of the winter mm-hmm. camping, you know, one thing Gashani and I did was was go for a, a bit of a nice day hike. Uh, I guess it was on Sunday. It was a, a lovely day, and we went out for about a five mile hike with a fair bit of climbing and some stairs and that sort of stuff. And I, you know, being the gentleman that I am, I offered to carry all the weight. <laughs> Actually, it was a it was gentleman in training. Well, you're I'm in you training, are a gentleman, yeah. but you're also in training. <laughs> you're not a gentleman in training. A <laughs> couple water bottles and various other things, some lunch and this and that. And um, it makes such a difference. I mean, when you're just, you know, I've been running a lot lately and it's just like once you add even 10 to 20 pounds, it's like, okay, you know, you start to feel it more in the hips and in the back and the shoulders mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So that'll be good. I'll be curious about your, your impressions of that, that weight vest on the treadmill. Yeah. I'm, tr- I'm trying to decide if I can eventually get like the personal agility. Uh, those of you who know, who know me well enough would know that like, I'm, uh, I, l- I like to be active, but I'm, I'm not nece- necessarily athletic mm-hmm. in, in this. Uh, I would love to get to a point where I could be walking while like playing call of duty. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, but I don't know if that would be too much of like my eyes and balance in one world that's moving quite quickly uh, while attempting to walk and not walk off the end of the treadmill. If I get too into a YouTube video, I notice that my my stride um, lengthens. Oh, sure. And I end up going towards the back. And a couple times I've almost like lost a foot off the back of the treadmill. Yeah, yeah. Which is ter- has a terrifying feeling. It's a little bit like slipping when you know you're near the edge of something. Yeah. But uh, I, I, I mean, let's face it. I don't think there's anything to gain by playing Call of Duty while I'm on the treadmill. <laughs> but it seemed like a, like kind of crawling, walking, juggling all at the same time. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. I, I think I had mentioned in a past episode that I'm kind of mildly terrified of treadmills for, for that reason. And, and I've been <laughs> sporadically using a stair climber at the gym uh, just because I kind of need to start building that in. And I really try to use it without holding on to the rails, you know, and I, mm-hmm. I see people, there was a guy next to me on the other one and he was like, like fully like leaning on it. Like he was reclining on it. And I thought that can't be as good of a workout. And so I, I've been trying to do it without holding on the rails at all. And it's, it's trickier than you think. Um, and then the other day, last week I was watching on the little screen on my phone just as a diversion. Cause I was on for like an hour. I watched the first episode of masters of the air on Apple TV on this little screen and and to do that while not holding on just as they wanted you to watch it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Horrible. Right. I mean, yeah, I shouldn't even say that out loud, but, uh, was a challenge, you know, kind of squinting at a small screen, not using the the rails and like on the stair climber. Right. Um, it was definitely an exercise in agility for sure. Well, we'll see if I end up in, you know, crutches or whatever. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. That'll really delay the treadmill progress. (laughs) So so how how was the uh, snow trekker tent? Sorry, I, I'm I'm really derailing us very quickly in this episode. <laughs> it was great. It was really good to be back out. I hadn't been camping, I think, in a couple of years, and um, this was a, a fun way to get back into it. We'd been wanting to try some winter camping for quite a while, and and also one of these so-called hot tents. And as I mentioned last week, uh, Eli, who's a listener of of TGN, longtime listener, his family started Snow Trekker Tent Company back in, I believe the nineties and his, his parents owned it and the siblings are involved and, and I had expressed interest and he actually was kind enough to drive over here and, and lend me one of their tents. It was his personal tent. It's called the high country. It's a nine and a half foot by nine and a half foot canvas walled tent that, um, and a little, uh, steel, uh, stove, uh, wood stove that you put inside. And 
So we packed it in the Defender, loaded up with, you know, cooler, a bunch of food, some cots, sleeping bags, way too much stuff. And drove a couple hours south to Whitewater State Park, which is one of my favorite parks here in, in Minnesota, um, barring up on the North Shore. Um, because it, it just has this amazing topography. It's it's in kind of what they call the driftless region, just some beautiful bluffs. There's a, a, a lovely uh, river flowing through it that is, is popular with trout fishermen and just beautiful hiking. It, it kind of, when you're there, it's it's a lot of uh, kind of pine forest and uh, steep trails and, and overlooks and, and these kind of sandstone bluffs and kind of feels almost like you're not even in the Midwest. It feels more like you're out West in, you know, South Dakota, Wyoming, Utah, something like that. And so we were literally the only people in the entire campground, you know, winter camping is not something that just kind of the average person goes out and does. And so when we arrived to kind of check in, the ranger said, you know, take your pick. And, and we had the whole campground to ourselves and drove around and find a good spot and, and, and pitched the tent, which was a lot easier than I thought it would be, uh, threw down a, a big tarp and then set up the tent over it, got the stove going. And it wasn't, you know, we've had such a wimpy winter here that I believe, you know, if we're talking Fahrenheit, that the day we arrived was probably maybe 30. So just below the freezing mark. And then at night it, it dipped down, it was quite a windy day and it dipped down into the twenties. So, you know, it was, it was brisk, but man, once we got that thing set up and and we're you know a little bit chilly and I thought okay let's get this this stove going and I, I got the wood in got it you know sparked up and mm-hmm. man that tent heat up in less than five minutes I mean especially <laughs> up, up near the top like you know you stand up and like there's this temperature differential in the top two feet of the tent where sure. like your head is just a tent thermocline just like sweating you know and then you sit down in your cot and uh, and it's a little cooler and. So it was kind of this adjustment to get used to regulating the, the temperature because it's it's a it's like a sheet metal based uh, little stove and so it heats up quickly, uh, easy to get going and all that, but it doesn't hold heat like like cast iron would, which obviously is pro- prohibitive because of weight. Sure. So you're you're kind of either always feeding it and, and kind of trying to balance the damper and kind of keep the temperature just right. Uh, but if you let it go too long, like the cold settles in very quickly. So then you stoke it up and then it gets really hot. And so there's a bit of a balance, kind of a learning curve. It it felt just downright luxurious. We had a little folding table, our couple of cots and this little stove in there. And it was just so cozy to kind of hang out in there. And we just, you know, we, we listened to, um, to an audiobook. I brought Joe Simpson's touching the void, which kind of felt like kind of a suitable sort of outdoorsy book to listen to, um, and we, we kind of set that up and, and listened to that as we were going to sleep the first day and uh, cooked some good meals. You know, the morning coffee is always better in the woods and then set off for a hike on, on Sunday, which turned out to be a lovely day. And, uh, and then, yeah, um, slept another night. Uh, so we had two nights there and then got up yesterday morning and kind of slowly packed up and came home. It was great. I, uh, couldn't have been more impressed with this tent. The setup was super easy. They've really thought things through. It's all uh, it's all made here in the U S um, uh, Eli's folks, uh, do the, the, the kind of manufacturing of the, the poles and kind of get, get the whole thing together. And then the, the actual canvas is stitched up at, uh, in the upper peninsula of Michigan where they make, I'm not sure who, if anyone out there is familiar with stormy Cromer, but it's a, a Michigan company that goes way back that makes these kind of iconic brimmed caps with these flaps. It almost is something you'd see in, in the Fargo, Fargo movies. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but apparently they do this, the stitching of the canvas for them. And, uh, 
goes up and gosh, we had that thing set up in, you know, less than 10 minutes and staked out and, and, uh, guide out. And then you, you put the, the stovepipe up through, through the, uh, the hole in the side and, and off you off you go. And it was, uh, it was great. Really a, really a fun way to do it. We didn't have proper snow. I think it would have been more kind of, you know, photogenic to have at least a few inches of snow on the ground with the tent, but, uh, it was cool enough that, that we really got to take advantage of having a, a heated tent. So thanks again to Eli and to snow trekker for the loaner. And, uh, if anyone's interested, we'll, we'll put a link to snow tracker tents in the, in the show notes. Cause it's a, it's a really cool business. So do you figure, um, do you figure if you do get a good, a good dumping of snow before February is over, you head back out for a night in it? We, we talked about it. I mean, we were driving away and I thought, Hey, let's, let's do this again. And I, the weather does not look promising in the next few weeks. I think oftentimes March we get a good dumping and, and then it's, mm-hmm. uh, the days are longer, which is a real bonus. True. Yeah. Um, especially when you're camping, like if you go and what, like mid January or something, you know, it's dark at four o'clock and kind of limits what you can do. And then you spend a lot of time in the tent. And so, yeah, kind of a mid March, like snowy, snowy, but sunny outing, maybe to the same park or somewhere, somewhere else would be, uh, would be a lot of fun. So we'll see. Yeah. Eli said to hold on to the tent for a little while. So if we get another chance, we'll, we'll give it another go, but, uh, yeah, good times. Really fun. Really, really fun kind of felt like I needed, needed a bit of an escape. You know, it was like, it's been a long winter and even though it hasn't been a, a particularly cold winter, it's just fun to get out and do a little adventuring. So yeah, good times. You know, the last few years since, um, since we started doing the cottage thing, like the, the cottage cabin property. Yeah. This time of year, I really start to, my brain starts to go like, you know, you're not, you're not that far away from like going up for a Saturday and seeing what's going on at the property and what's still standing and, <laughs> and that sort of thing. And, yeah. and the, the ability to do a bit of camping, especially like, look, if we're going to have warmer springs in this part of the world, yeah, you obviously due to regrettable scenarios with global warming, but I mean, still make the most of it. It's, I'm not going to change the global warming issue by not camping or by right. camping on the weekends. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think, uh, I think that could be a, a nice thing, especially with what March is like uh, getting ready for watches and wonders, a nice little getaway on the weekends to go spend a night under the stars and build a fire and that kind of thing. So I, I definitely think that having something like that, especially in a scenario where you do get a pretty serious winter when it hits like yeah. Minnesota, yeah, uh, I think just gives you that flexibility of like, if it's not that hard to set up, then the barrier to entry to still go out isn't that bad. Right. You've right. got the Land Rover. Yeah. You, you can find a spot in the snow to put it down yeah. and, and just kind of enjoy, even if, even if it is just a night. Yeah. A night away is pretty nice. Yeah. I was, uh, I, I was surprised at kind of how easy it all was. I, I think the idea of of a hot tent is a little bit intimidating. It's not like, you know, I've always done my camping in dome tents, which go up very mm-hmm. easily. It's just kind of those shock corded poles. You run them through some sleeves, stake out the corners and, and you're done. And I thought this was going to be much more involved, kind of like you know, some big, you know, army tent. And it was, it was very easy. And, you know, I'm always so pleased when, when we go camping and you, you look around, you know, here we are lying in this tent very luxuriously on a couple of cots with a little table and a fire going. And I thought we, I mean, okay, we didn't backpack in with all this stuff, but like this all fit in the back of our vehicle. And like, here we are like spread out, like in this pretty comfy scenario, keeping warm out in the woods for a couple of days. And there's just something so satisfying. And then to come home and, and have that contrast is, is something I want to do. I think I always want to do it regularly going forward because it's just, uh, it just gives you such an appreciation, not only for, 
the, the conveniences of home, but also um, just sort of the, the the basic and kind of simple pleasures of building a fire and staying warm and packing properly and cooking a good meal. Yeah. And, and man, coffee tastes so tastes so good in the woods. I just love that first cup. Oh, of coffee. I mean, no, nothing tastes as good as food. Yeah, cooked in the woods. Yeah, yeah. Food, coffee, whatever you got. Whiskey never tastes better. Yeah. Beer never tastes better. It's all. It's all. Oh yeah. You know, obviously, you have a lot of room in the Land Rover. It would it be more than you could put on a little sled and drag to a, a slightly more offsite area if you were willing to to put the the said dragging work in. Well, I think that's that was the intention of these tents to begin with. So we you know we were kind of almost cheating by doing it in a vehicle. And and if you look at their website and some of the video links of of people that use these, um, they were developed uh, especially in this area for uh, kind of ski camping or snowshoeing up in the boundary waters canoe area up near the Ontario border up there, where it's just you know you're just skiing across a frozen lake and, and setting up, and so you're towing all this stuff on a little pulk or toboggan or something and and doing it that way and and therefore everything is kind of lighter weight i mean it's not super light but but the stove is actually quite quite light and that would be fun that would be a fun adventure to do if you had some time i certainly wouldn't want to tear down and and get moving every single day but i think if you kind of skied in for a full day and then like plunked yourself down for two or three nights i think that'd be a really really fun getaway yeah, I think if we had had more snow up here this year, you brought up snowshoeing briefly. That was absolutely like number one on our list. Yeah, was to snap up some snowshoes, and uh, and you know we bored them in the past. But every time that I get out on a pair of snowshoes, especially up at the cottage property, it's just so nice to have like the ability to move pretty freely through the space because because you know a couple years ago we were up there in three extra feet of snow, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and you could just kind of cut your own path. It's pretty difficult to not be able to backtrack so getting lost isn't that big of a concern because you've made it quite a trail with the, yeah. the snowshoes yeah but then we just flat out didn't have the season for it i'm yeah. not sure that if we'd gotten it if we would have would have had more than one or two weekends to put them to use this year yeah without yeah. without traveling some distance right yeah yeah it's I, the contrast between this winter and last winter is just remarkable and and they just had the first first world cup cross-country ski races here this past weekend here in Minneapolis. And I believe it's the first on American soil possibly ever. Um, and it was, it was this huge event. And fortunately last Wednesday, Minneapolis got, you know, seven inches of snow. So it kind of prettied things up and and made the trails nice for the race. But, uh, where we were two hours South, even, uh, it was bare ground. So yeah, really a weird, weird year, but good times. Totally. It was really fun. Yeah. All right, you want to jump into a little bit of wrist check and then we can uh, play the tape with uh, Carell? Yeah, definitely. Well, I've got on, uh, you know, he, my connection with Carell was uh, several months ago. He got in touch and, and wanted to send me a prototype of their monolith watch that they're developing. And look, I'm not going to talk much about it because he goes into some good detail about this thing. Uh, I'll just say that I've been wearing it off and on for the past couple of months, doing a variety of things with it. And as, as you'll hear him say, I mean, this watch weighs nothing and it's due to the material that they make it out of, as well as the fact that it's kind of hollowed out, um, for insulation purposes with some air core built into the, the case itself. But it's, it's a, it's a really neat thing. And, um, I am wearing it on, uh, quite an interesting strap actually. And I'll talk about that in final notes, but, uh, yeah, I thought it was fitting to wear, of course, the barrel hand monolith today. So that's what's on my wrist. Yep, nothing, uh, nothing hugely surprising here. I'm, I'm back on the game with the Pelagos 39. Uh, I've had it on for the last several days. 
and uh, you know i love it i can't talk i don't need to talk more about it uh, it's been <laughs> on the last you know year and a half's worth of episodes uh but that's all i've got on and, and really there's no need there was no need to pick some watch to, to add another five minutes we got a solid nearly an hour with uh corel yeah so let's jump into that but yeah i mean you know we we don't like to necessarily do back-to-back uh, chat episodes or interview episodes um but this just seemed so fitting and the timing was perfect for it so uh mm-hmm. today's guest is Karel bashand uh, Karel is the founder, CEO, and chief engineer at Barrelhand Watch Company. Uh, he's an independent watchmaker and engineer. He's based in Northern California. And he, he actually started his career at NASA Ames Research Center, where he was developing simulated microgravity devices. And he'll talk a little bit about that in our chat, which is a really an interesting thing as well. He's an expert in 3D printing. And uh, his take on watchmaking is about as different from Dr. Struthers as you could get. Without further ado, let's uh, let's get into it with Karel Bashand. All right, well, we're pleased to uh, welcome Karel Bashand to uh, to TGN. Karel, thanks for joining us. Uh, early uh, your time on the Pacific Coast there. Uh, how are you doing? Good, good, good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, you know, we um, you know, we hadn't we'd planned to talk to you at some point, um, but this is kind of a big week for. For barrel hand uh your company and we'll, we'll get into all the background and all of that um but uh why don't you just kick things off with the exciting news i mean tell us what's happening this week and in fact when this episode goes live all fingers and toes crossed uh something <laughs> moment- momentous will will occur here right tell us about that yeah 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 hopefully the stars align so we have uh, a payload on board the first lunar mission since the apollo program basically so um, there's this company named Intuitive Machines. They're based out in the U.S. and they're attempting the first private company lunar lander mission. Um, so if they're successful, it'll be the first time the U.S. has gone back in like 50 years. So historically, just from a space perspective, it's a big milestone. And then um, for us, we're also testing some hardware on it for our new project we're working on. Which is a watch, let's be clear, right? Which is a watch, yeah. <laughs> Tool watch. But we'll, we'll swing back to that in a bit, and you can tell us a little more about, about that, <laughs> or at least what you can tell us about it. Um, but, you know, for, for space nerds, I think this mission probably has been on people's radar, so to speak. Um, but it kind of crept up on me. I mean, you were sending me some updates last week about the launch and things like that. But, um, you know, with kind of all the news and flurry around different private companies, SpaceX and Blue Origin and all the, everything that's kind of going on in terms of space exploration and travel back to the moon and going on to Mars, et cetera. I feel like it, it sort of gets lost in the, in kind of the, the, the noise. Um, but this is a pretty significant thing, isn't it? How did you get hooked up with it? I mean, it's been a long journey. So we've been working on this project for over a year, but it's true what you say too. I feel like for how big of a milestone it is just from the space industry. It's funny how small it feels in the the scope of the media. There's so much like noise I feel lately that it's hard to pick out like the truly like historical milestone moments that are happening in this world. And even before the intuitive machines mission that's on route now so it left earth orbit and it's going to land if successful on the moon in two days well and we're recording we're recording this on a tuesday so when this goes live yeah yeah thursday at 6 a.m eastern might have already touched down okay all right yeah it'll be on its descent (laughs) yeah 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 it's crazy it's crazy to be a part of and it's crazy just to witness as well 
Um, and even last month, there was another private company called Astrobotics. Hmm. Uh, they tried landing their Peregrine. Uh, it crashed on landing. That's kind of been the the flow so far with private companies trying to land. Um, there was iSpace that you might have heard of. They're based in Japan. Yeah. And they tried landing last year, and that was also yeah. a, a fuel issue on landing, I think. So it's just... It's not an easy task. And the fact that we did it 50 years ago with like <laughs> pen and paper yeah. and we did it the first go with people on yeah. it. That's like, that's so true. That's crazy. <laughs> that's so crazy. It is. And now we have like all this state of the art technology. We have advanced computers to do the simulations and it's still yeah. like an insane feat. So yeah. I'm really excited. I, I, you know, I'm optimistic, but at the same time, like, yeah. It could very well crash on landing, and it's still a cool mission to be a part of. Yeah. Well, let, let, before we get too deep into this, uh, let, let's back up a bit because uh, <laughs> we, we kind of skipped over the important bits here. I, I feel like we need to kind of learn a little bit about your background and also about Barrel Hand. So tell us about your your own background and then how Barrel Hand came about. For sure. So I can maybe go back to a quick intro of like how I got into watches. Um, I was 17 in college i just started like my freshman year as a mechanical engineer and i don't know if you guys remember but like 2010 watch industry all these brands were putting out like the craziest cgi you could think of everyone was playing around with like exploded views and all this cool uh like basically showcasing the inner workings which for me not knowing anything about watches prior that was like an engineer's wet dream that was like the coolest thing you could imagine yeah. Um, to do something at that scale too. So I had seen one of Erwerk's like crazy exploded views and I was like, need to own one of these. Didn't know what an expensive watch was. <laughs> so <laughs> to keep a long story short, there was no way I was going to afford it at the time. So I basically started reverse engineering it on my computer and modeling all the components uh, in SolidWorks, which is like a 3D modeling program. And after a year of like modeling it, I was like, okay, I think I could maybe try to manufacture it. Um, manufacturing is not cheap, especially for precision components like that. To CNC machine one-off stuff would be super expensive. So that's kind of how it got me into 3D printing too, was just out of necessity. You just, I learned all about watchmaking through reverse engineering. And then I get to manufacturing and there was like this new kind of, wave of manufacturing with 3d printing that made it really accessible even for someone like me on a college student budget to produce and prototype something of that level of intricacy so i basically recreated the Erwerk ur202 um, fully functional you can run through and like all the the barrels rotate and stuff um, wow. and then after that i was uh I got to meet with Erwerk. They invited me out because uh, they had seen the project and <laughs> they just wanted to learn about 3D printing. And also they saw I was a total fanboy. So it was cool that they yeah. invited me for that. <laughs> um, it was during like a SIHH or something Amazing. like that at the time. You, you were doing this kind of on the side because you were you were in school for mechanical engineering, not related to watches. Not at all. Was yeah. that part of a school project or was that just like in the evenings and the weekends kind of just tinkering? I tried to make it a school project, but I don't think they fully understood what I was doing. So it was just personal, yeah. like passion project on the side. I would just spend wow. like as soon as I got back from class, I was just tinkering away at this thing. So 
it was super fun and I learned a lot from it. And then when I met with Erwerk, they kind of inspired me. They were like, you know, if, if you're going to do something of this level of complexity, like you should really try like creating your own designs and that, you know, hearing that from your, your idols, I was like, all right, I'm like drawing sketches on, on the flight back to, to California. It was like the first time I had left the U S in general. And then, um, started on what was, uh, to be project one, which we launched a couple of years ago. Wow. Yeah. You know, did you ever foresee watches becoming a career line for you or starting a company? I mean, it sounds like it was kind of a side project that took over. Um, but you have a background in, you know, we started the show here talking about the, the lunar mission here. Um, you have a background or a connection with NASA, right? Was that kind of a direction you were going to go? I was always interested in space. Um, so I had, uh, for my senior project as a mechanical engineer, you kind of do like a, yeah, a senior project where you build something like a year long project. And we had gotten a contract with NASA to develop a simulated microgravity device. So, uh, Ames research center was right next to my university, San Jose state. So we would go over there and basically they wanted to develop a a device that could simulate like zero gravity or microgravity so they could test plant cells and see how the the roots grow and stuff like that so that was a super cool project um just tons of insights from that as well but um i i was always interested in space but i didn't really find like a specific path where there was a lot of creative freedom it's very like engineering by the book you just follow instructions almost it's 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 hard to get creative on kind of like the design, mm. the design side side of it. It's very like function focused, which now we're getting into. But at the time, watchmaking was a really alluring thing for me. Not so much the watches themselves, but the platform for innovation that it created. To me, it was like this is the holy grail of engineering, and it really pushes you if you can implement a new technology or make something functional at that scale. It really, it's kind of the Holy grail of, of engineering in terms of precision, the tolerances you need, um, how small the parts are that need to be manufactured. So it, it was a really cool testing platform. And for me, what got me into watches was more the engineering and like the potential for innovation that I felt was like missing. I was like, there's all these cool new, uh, 3d printing technologies all these cool new like manufacturing techniques why is this not being widely used or like yeah trying to play around with it in the watch industry so that that's kind of what project one was was to create a i mean it's almost like a concept car it wasn't necessarily with the intention oh i'm gonna make a brand and I'm going to, I was just hmm. like, this is a personal project and if people want it cool, but I'm really going to use it to learn as much as I can from it. Try these new manufacturing techniques. Let's push the limits of 3d printing on it, see what's possible. And if I can sell one at the end of the day, cool. I can like <laughs> try to recoup my costs from it, but it was kind of more of a, uh, a learning approach, uh, for project one. It's, you know, last week we had Rebecca Struthers on who's I don't know if you listened to that episode but we we had and she's this incredible master watchmaker over in the UK who restores very old watches and makes new watches 
by very traditional techniques and watchmaking. I mean, we're looking at opposite ends of the spectrum within a week of, of our show here. You know, so much of watchmaking is about tradition and looking back and traditional techniques and finishing and that sort of thing. And you're, you kind of came at it from a whole different perspective because you didn't have that background. You had this me mechanical engineering background and the 3d printing aspect. And, um, you know, so much of watchmaking is look, looking backwards and you are, you're definitely looking the opposite direction, really. Yeah. And it's interesting that you say that too, because if you, if you do look backwards at what timekeeping used to be about, it was the most functional, the most innovative field. I mean, these were historically, they were always tools. It was, you're developing a marine chronometer. You need to map out the longitudes. That stuff needs to be super precise. Um, you're going to the top of Mount Everest or you're bringing a watch to the moon. Like you needed, these were purely tools and it had to be functional. There was no time for gimmicks. It was just, how can we make this withstand the environment or the application and make sure it meets the criteria? And so, you know, throughout history, as far as we've been keeping time, it's always been a very forward thinking approach of, you know, using new technologies. If there's new metallurgy, people were using that. Um, you look at Breguet uh, developing, I don't know, the overcoil or the, the parachute like shock system. I mean, yeah. if, if he was alive today, I, I think he would be surprised to see like, you know, where's, <laughs> where's this uh, like innovation? Cause you know, when the quartz crisis hit, as you guys know, it's like, all the brands switched to luxury. It was like, that was the new status quo. There wasn't a specific need to innovate and there wasn't a environment where the demand was such that the current watches couldn't really meet those standards. So it kind of just became, I mean, like a luxury kind of yeah. design thing. And most watches you'll see today, it's, it's more looking back on the past or, they're trying to create, you know, something that is like pseudo innovative where it's like, they'll use a cool new case material that doesn't really do anything different, but it, it looks cool or it sounds cool in the, in the press release. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious with, with project one, just to put a timestamp on when that kind of came to actual, you know, commercial fruition that we're talking 2019, 2020. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So we, we had gone into production of project one in 2020 and it was about seven years of like total development from like start to completion where we were doing deliveries. So it was a long project. And I think the most time consuming on that too, is setting up infrastructure here in the U S. Um, if you look at any watch that gets made now, it's most likely coming from a one-stop shop, um, whether it be a U.S. company, a Swiss company, or uh, a Japanese company, it's like most of these people are not going to build a supply chain from scratch. They're going to hit up a one-stop shop, usually in Geneva or in China, and you know they have their list of suppliers. They put it together, um, but it's also kind of limiting uh, for for us, at least, where we wanted to use a lot of new innovative technologies that the watch industry is not connected with. So because we approached it from a mechanical engineering kind of pursuit, we were completely removed from the watch industry, which meant we're decentralized. We can't use their supply chain, but at the same time, 
some room to explore. Yeah, yeah. It gave us a lot of freedom to really build something that no one had ever really developed uh, because the watch industry is so insular. So it, was a, it co- took a couple of years to set up all this supply chain in the U.S., but well worth it now. And for building like Monolith, it makes it uh, already much easier. I think the the other thing that stood out to me is when I went back over that timeline, you know, kicking off in, say, 2013, 2014 with a project, you know, technology eventually settles down into having a certain cycle for its generations. But I, I, I can only speak through the experience of a, a few friends who are very deep into 3D printing. There's been about 20 generations of 3D printing since 2013, maybe more, right? Yeah, it's crazy. I I mean, I get goosebumps like thinking about how fast it's moving. And I, I don't think mm-hmm. most people have a pulse on just how fast it is where when I was in high school and I first got access to a 3D printer, we had this state of the art printer that the school had bought. I think it was like $100,000 and it printed plastic at 0.3 millimeters. So basically each layer was 0.3 millimeters, which at the time was like revolutionary. And now with Project One or with Monolith, what we're building now, uh, we can print titanium stainless steel at 0.02 millimeters. So it's like, I mean, 10 times more <laughs> precise and it's in basically any material you want. So precision. I mean, that's that's the difference between SD and 4K. Yeah, it's crazy. Like just in terms of like thinking in resolution exactly. that people might be able to understand. Like that's such a huge development. Yeah. It, it must have been interesting to have seen earlier rapid prototypes that came off of conventional maybe Home Plus or even SME style machines and then up into the stuff that you guys are probably have access to now. It, it, you're it's it's you're plant you're building an entirely different product. Yeah, in terms of its finesse, right? Yeah, it's insane. What it allows you to That's do so is cool. is really revolutionary, in my opinion. Um, you think about what that entails and the doors it opens up, and I, I think that's why for me, I was like, why is the watch industry not using this? Because imagine you can print. I mean you can basically bake in your tolerances. So at 0.02 millimeters, that's that's like the tolerances that you usually play with for uh, very precise components in like a gear train. So if you can print at that resolution and you can do it in just about any material, the, the possibilities are endless. Now you're looking at, could you potentially 3D print an entire movement like monolithically? You could just you know, plug and play and have this gear train working straight out of the printer. We're not 100% there yet because now there's friction issues if you just print it all in one material. But let's say someone is able to print multi-material where you could print ceramics and steel in the same layer. Now you can make uh, like ruby bearings kind of thing. And all of a sudden you could monolithically print something that that could function straight out of printer. So that's maybe, you know, five, 10 years out, but we're getting into that stage and we're already uh, like for us, we're 3d printing movement bridges uh, like we did for project one. Um, and we don't do post-processing. It's like we print in steel, a movement bridge, and then we basically, you know, we finished it and stuff for project one. But that to me is like a huge leap in, in what's possible uh, just 10 years ago. 
the way you came at watches and, and this project grew organically out of out of your your training, schooling, and your own personal interest, and then it became, you know, it just happened to be a watch. I mean, it could have been you might have been three D printing a automobile engine or you know what, what kitchen gadget or whatever it is, but it happened to be a watch, and then you kind of expanded that, and, and lo and behold, barrel hand was was created. But I think you know to your point, I think the the watch collecting world is as you mentioned it's it's about luxury and i think luxury it's it's like this philosophical difference between if i'm going to pay a lot of money i want it to be something that was you know carved by a human being and and finished painstakingly over weeks and months and you know it, it took a year to make this watch and whatever and and it almost flies in the face of that philosophy for you know a young upstart like you to come along and say <laughs> I, I want to just 3d print an entire watch that comes out of the machine ready to go it 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 seems like blasphemy almost, but I th- feel like that also goes along with what you were saying earlier about timekeeping having used to be a, a a means to an end, a tool for use, and nowadays it isn't that. And so I think people look for different reasons for collecting it and owning it and using it. Um, and I think it's just it's fascinating. I feel like the industry needs both sides of it. I think I think we need people like you and Barrel Hand to kind of shake things up, but there will always be people that are in kind of the Rebecca Struthers camp who want, you know, something where the, the gear teeth were literally cut by hand on a, on a hundred year old machine, you know? Absolutely. And I think that's, what's beautiful about any art form, whether you look at like music is you can appreciate many different genres. And to me, it's funny that I, I think the watch industry is kind of like very, it gets clicky sometimes where it's like, Oh, like there's the tool watch, like, click and then there's the like luxury watch click and it's like to me i i've always greatly appreciated like someone that can make a watch from scratch without the tools i'm using and they're doing it on a lathe by hand Uh, that to me is (laughs) is equally mind-blowing and uh, you know you can appreciate uh, different genres it's it's all the same like art and the same passion um it's just like with music like you could appreciate the artistry of like mozart and also jam out to some led zeppelin and it's it's equally good yeah, yeah. just in different ways and it's it's also like at a certain extent it's not that much fun to have one in the vacuum of the other like obviously the last jason what would you say seven eight ten years has been largely focused on new modern watches looking like watches from before when we used to actually need watches. Yeah. And that can't last forever. It's a trend, right? And I think all these other areas of the watch industry, including the very tech forward, obviously brands like Urverk, and it's so cool that you got to meet their team. They're such like innovative, kind, fun people to be around when you see them. And they, especially if you get an introduction to their product from someone who worked on it or, or saw it in their brain and then made it, become a reality that if you have the money you can put on your wrist uh it's all of that kind of stuff i think leads to some really interesting brands that maybe don't always enjoy or haven't enjoyed the the core limelight focus of say 1939 to 1974 or whatever we have currently for the last uh, the last little while but i yeah i think it's it's exciting and it's really cool to see um, kind of, I'm 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 excited to see what you guys carry forward from Project One into Monolith. Obviously, the the Monolith section of your website is still sort of uh, functioning as a bit of a teaser, a preview, not not a full reveal. So it's a uh, it's exciting to see what what's kind of on the horizon for that. Thank you. Yeah, I think what I realized from Project One too, as I was finishing it, was 
I realized I don't want to just design watches the rest of my life. It, it, it felt very like boxed in. And I think just approaching it from like, like, don't get me wrong either. Like I can appreciate the artistry and designs of just coming up with super novel concepts and coming up with like new complications. But I always felt like I wanted to apply it towards something and have like a functional use case uh, for the things I was making and watches just kind of happened to be a really cool platform to test out and learn new things. And, and now with monolith, uh, we, we kind of wanted to approach what we're doing more as a technology company than a watch company. And instead of being so focused on, on watches specifically, we wanted to make tools. And so, uh, when you think of tools, you think of like a real world application. And to us, we were seeing, you know, the, this revival of the the space industry where you're seeing moon landing starting to happen. Uh, SpaceX is sending people up like it's a bus trip now where it's like every week. It's crazy. And then you're seeing all this happen. And we're like, well, you know, no one is really at least for watches, there hadn't been a lot of innovation happening for this very harsh, like extreme environment. Um, so Monolith kind of became that first tool that we wanted to develop is how can we make something that is hyper-functional and built to withstand uh, these extreme conditions? Because no one had ever really designed specifically for this application of long durations. There had been watches that had passed the tests of going into space and able to meet the criteria that NASA had set out, but to really build something from scratch ground up and think of what that entails was a really exciting uh, project to start off on, uh, which is how we got into Monolith. Speaking of kind of looking backwards in the watch industry, um, the same, as you just said, goes for kind of space themed watches. I mean, the, the Speedmaster is the ultimate example, right? It's a watch that was basically developed in the late 50s and, and with a movement from the 40s um, that was approved by NASA, used for EVAs and moon landings and and orbits and that sort of thing. And then since then, I mean, I feel like nowadays we see private citizens or or astronauts that are at the space station and they're wearing Someone has someone out of Fortis and someone had a, you know, uh, Apple watch, you know, Rolex or an Apple watch or whatever. And I, I just feel like it's almost commonplace now. A watch can survive those, I guess, brief forays into space and maybe the occasional EVA. But when it comes to the goals of monolith to kind of move into to your, your forthcoming or current watch development, what are the goals there? What are the challenges with monolith that you're seeking? Um, is it longer exposures to the vacuums of space and the temperature differentials and things yeah so the main mission is to build something that with can withstand the next chapter of space exploration so for the most part we've we've kind of backtracked we we do like eva missions outside of the iss for eight hours um but beyond that we actually haven't done super long missions or or even missions to the moon so we're kind of looking ahead of what those new missions will look like, what it's going to demand. Um, and we're going to spend longer amounts of times. We're going to be further out into space. Um, so we need to build something that's kind of made for that application. And the main things that, as you mentioned, 
Um, temperature is a huge one. So you're looking at like minus 120 Celsius to plus 120 Celsius. And <laughs> that's really cold, obviously. So it, it's, it's one thing to make a watch, you know, if it can withstand a couple hours, um, you know, eventually the coldness kind of creeps in, but we wanted to approach it as, can you make a watch sustainable in this environment? Could, could it just, you know, kind of run and operate where this is like a normal operating range for this watch? So, uh, that's kind of how we're approaching the, the temperature side of it. Um, then you have solar radiation, which might not seem like a big thing, but that's also like kind of what guided us towards mechanical watches was out of necessity. We weren't just trying to make a tribute to mechanical watches. It was like, okay, if you have electronics, um, uh, for example, if you look at the Omega, like X 33, you could use it in the space station. But as soon as you bring like a liquid crystal display outside into those environments, it's going to freeze up after a couple hours. So you kind of realize that there's advantages to simple mechanical systems that are super redundant. Um, and with solar radiation, you can also get like, uh, electronics that get fried or, you know, some, some bits get flipped and now all of a sudden it's not running the operation you want it to. So it, it basically came out of necessity that we wanted to go mechanical. It wasn't just to pay tribute. It was like the same thing for when you go diving. It's, I hear a lot of people, you know, always have like a mechanical backup and it sounds like, oh, they're paying tribute to the fifties divers. <laughs> but really it's like, you want that redundancy. If your dive computer fails, you want something that's going to withstand, uh, and be kind of that resilient backup. So the same applies for space exploration as well. It's such a beautiful thing, isn't it? I mean, I, I love that really cool still relying on something mechanical as a backup to the, the most forward thinking technologically advanced you know, watches in, in, in space. I mean, it's just, it, it, it's just so poetic. It's so perfect. I love that. What's kind of the function that you're after with a watch? I mean, it, it initially, is it just, it's going to be time only, but are, do you see any specific functions that would be handy in space? I mean, telling time is obviously important on its own, but do you foresee any unique functions that are relevant to space exploration? Yeah. So we're already kind of exploring, uh, some, some <laughs> projects down the line, um, on the side that are being developed, but, uh, for now, like the one that you've been beta testing as well, it's, it's simple time only. And the idea with that was there's so many things to think about in developing a watch that's really built for space that we wanted to start with like the simplest platform. So it's like, let's start with time only, let's make it as robust as possible and really make this the platform that we can then build off of. So uh, of course, naturally the next one would be a chronograph that's kind of classic in terms of what's been used in the past. And it's a hyper-functional tool, whether you're uh, diving or in deep space, just some way to kind of like timestamp is a uh, hyper-functional um, and then you could get into uh, GMT type functions. So keeping track of time in different areas, whether you're, you know, you got earth time and then your local time, maybe in Sol's, uh, the unit for Mars as an example. So, you know, that's, that's kind of down the road, but um, as far as like timing devices, there's many different routes you can go down. 
Um, but naturally we wanted to build something that was like the most bare bones, basic functional tool. And then we can kind of, uh, build off of it from there. Yeah. And, and tell us a little bit about what you can tell us, at least at this point about monolith. Um, tell us about some of the features of this watch. Now I'm, I'm wearing the, the kind of the, the, one of the prototypes that you sent me and <laughs> certainly the case is a standout. They're, they're unique aspects of the case, but tell us a little bit about other things like, like this unique, uh, I don't know if you call it nano printed case. Oh, back, yeah. The, the, yeah, disc yeah. On the back. Tell us all about the watch or what you can tell us. Yeah, sure. So as I was mentioning earlier with the temperature, um, range that's present in space, we wanted to make something that was insulated. Um, and so the case or the chassis we call it is, uh, 3d printed in a material called scalmaloy. So it's, <laughs> it's a new type of alloy that's as light as aluminum with the strength of titanium. Um, so we wanted it to be ultra light. So it's not expensive to send to space. Uh, cost per kilo is like 20,000, uh, us. So any weight <laughs> reduction you can make, uh, goes a long way. Um, so it's this ultralight material, uh, for the chassis it's used in aerospace already for satellites and stuff like that. Uh, but scalmaloy is not something that you ever see in a consumer product or, uh, like the average, like what you could see, like, and handle in your hand. So that's also going to be a first, uh, as, as like a consumer facing product for, uh, using scalmaloy and the way that we 3d print the chassis, we created a air core insulation system. So basically the inside of the chassis is completely hollowed out during the printing process. We basically don't print, uh, this like hollow chamber and it acts as an insulation barrier to further, uh, keep the movement inside or the engine. Uh, at an ambient temperature because there's only so much you can do on like making a engine run in those temperatures. So it's better to actually, you know, create a system where it insulates it so that by the time you're at the engine, it's, it's more or less an ambient temperature. Hmm. Just a, a quick, quick question there for those of us who aren't mechanical engineers, such as myself, uh, is the major concern with temperature, a huge temperature swing in a movement um, actual expansion or retraction of the some of the connecting points, so a change in the friction, or is it the fact that the oil stops doing what it's supposed to do at a certain point, or maybe both? That's spot on. It, it's both of those. So expansion and contraction is is huge, especially if you're looking at small moving parts like in an engine. Where I mean, you know, the the moment the gear train is is kind of out of out of alignment, it can slow down your timekeeping and lots of other things. So um, we do the same thing even on the kind of like macro scale of the assembly of the watch itself. So we make sure that all the parts uh, expand and contract uniformly. So we kind of look at the thermal uh, expansion ratios of all the different parts involved, whether it's like the chassis with the screws and the case back. So we're not having something that expands or contracts and kind of starts to rip uh, the assembly apart. Um so, yeah, no, that's a good question. And it's something that uh, you have to think about. You can't just kind of like plug things together and hope that the, the temperatures won't uh, affect it in the long term, uh, especially on the engine. Yeah. I mean, it, it's funny, Jason mentioned having Dr. Struthers on last week and, and obviously a lot of our audience and 
Jason, myself have read Dava Sobel's uh, Longitude, the book, and maybe you have as well, Carol. And it, it's hilarious to go back and think of people making clocks for boats having to deal with kind of the same things that will happen on spaceships going out into space. It's a wider delta of temperature, to be fair. You can read about uh, Harrison making elements of the clock out of specific pieces of wood that didn't change their profile that much in a 20 Celsius or 30 Celsius temperature swing. So it's, it's kind of fascinating to think that this is still a problem or, or a, a challenge to, to making a watch for a difficult environment. Yeah, 100%. It feels like we're kind of embarking on a new new frontier, even as the engineers, if we're not actively going to space, we're, we're kind of starting to think about how you approach these problems. And so you have to look at everything from the materials to uh, just like how the parts are going to fit together too. There's a lot of innovation in the chassis. I can... I could go on with that one for, for a while, but the, the main <laughs> thing is that it has like an air core system and it's keeping the engine insulated. Um, we kept it super light. So the, the chassis itself, I think is like around 10 grams. So the whole watch should be just right around one ounce when it's all done. Oh, wow. Um, which is super light. It doesn't, we weren't like striving for, Oh, let's make the lightest watch in the world. But I mean, it's going to be like Richard mill territory, uh, on their ultralight stuff. So, uh, just out of necessity, oh, yeah. just trying to make something super light, we hollow out the case for the insulation. So it just naturally kind of progressed in that route. Another feature that we have that's really cool is, uh, the crown system. So, uh, we have like, we call it an airlock crown system, but basically it's, uh, able to operate in vacuum as well as you could deep dive with it. So we've, we've pressure tested it at 57 bars. So like 570 meters, um, which is overkill. No one's really diving that far anyways, but it's cool to know that you could do it. (laughs) And then the other thing that's cool with this crown system is you can actually, uh, operate it underwater or in vacuum. So, uh, so far we've been testing it and just kind of like not, uh, just going diving and stuff with it and you can operate the crown at around a hundred feet. So like, uh, you know, you could, you could get some pressure on it and the crown will still be operable, uh, whether it's in vacuum or, or deep underwater. So you can wind it, you could set it. Um, it's not something that is necessary, but I always like the idea of having a tool where no matter where it is you you can't like misuse it it's not like oh if i press this button at the wrong time it could scrap the whole thing so the idea of just like a redundant system where you know if you want to be 20 meters underwater and you want to like change the time zone for some reason you you could well i think for future for 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 future thinking i think you know when i think about space exploration in my mind you know when i wear this watch or when i'm hearing you talk i'm imagining scenarios out of andy weir's book the martian and you know um mark watney his astronaut hero of the book who's out doing a variety of things fixing spacecraft growing vegetables exploring whatever like eventually it's not maybe anytime really soon but people will be uh, in greater frequency going to space potentially to mars walking around on the moon if there are colonies and things those everyday things um that we do with a watch, like winding, setting, changing the time, all of that, you're kind of thinking ahead um, towards those things. So it's the fact is like somebody might say, well, why would you need to wind or set your watch in outer space or whatever? Well, okay, now maybe not, maybe not on a 
two-hour EVA to fix something on the outside of the space station, you wouldn't. But eventually somebody might be, I don't know, what, you know, wandering around <laughs> going for a stroll on Mars someday. And they, well, gee, I, I, my watch needs to be reset or something. You know, that's kind of, you're, you're kind of thinking ahead for all of these eventual scenarios, right? Yeah, exactly. I, I think it's just nice to not have to think about those things, not have to think about using a tool in a certain way. It's just when you need it, it's there and you can use it however you need to. So yeah, 100%. All right, this this little whimsical case back thing, you've, you've got you've to talk about that a bit. The, the case back kind of came organically through our development of this watch, where uh, if you look at how we approach space exploration it's it's very engineering minded and almost in like a sterile negative way i would say so if you think about like being on the iss uh, it's very like engineer focused they're not thinking about the psychology of space or what it is to live in a lab essentially with white walls for six months it's, it's not like the most warm welcoming experience and Traditionally, for space exploration, we're very like function focused, and we often don't think about the psychology of space. Um, but if you look back at even the early like missions into low Earth orbit, uh, people had been talking about this thing called the overview effect. Um, I, I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but basically, it's a phenomena that was coined in the '80s, and it basically describes how when you go into space and you're away from everything you've ever known, your family, your, your home, uh, like everything that humans have ever known is, is you're removed from it. And people, almost all astronauts report experiencing this kind of like awe inspiring moment, but also kind of existential. You're, you're so far away and you can't get back. <laughs> um, you're, you're thinking about yeah. like, why is there, yeah. why do we have borders? Why, why is, why are we wrecking? And like, so like competitive with each other, why are we not working together? So there's a lot of psychology and philosophy that that people kind of uh, reflect on as you go into space. And it's something that's often overlooked. So uh, we wanted to take that into consideration of, you know, what astronauts must feel to go into space and be that far away from home and that far away from all the like normal things that we do day to day with hanging out with family and friends. So we wanted to, with Monolith Explorer, all the technical challenges of space exploration. So the temperatures, the solar radiation, that sort of thing, but then also make it where it can have uh, approach the psychological side of space exploration. And uh, you, you had mentioned this too uh, on one of your recent posts about how, you know, watches are also very like sentimental and they're, they're like inspirational. It's like, you know, you take them on adventures and they're, they're personal in a way. So, uh, I think that was like a good, uh, aspect to kind of bake into monolith. And we wanted to create a connection to home. Um, so when astronauts are up in space, they have something that kind of grounds them or connects them back to earth. And when we thought of, connection to home, we basically wanted to create a something that would would give that connection. And 
So we developed something called the memory disk and it's using a new technology. It's basically nano engraving uh, into a small nickel plate. The plate itself could last tens of thousands of years. So in terms of like durability, it's you're kind of also preserving our timestamp in humanity. Uh, and then we also wanted to curate content from around the world to create this connection to home on this disc. And what's really cool about the, the disc too is it's not like a USB drive or something that's going to be antiquated in five years and you need to like you know, extract the data, you can just use a magnifier or a microscope and actually see all the data visually. So it's easy to reverse extract, you know, 10,000 years from now, they're not going to have the encryption codes to, to decode your hard drive, but something like this, it's basically <laughs> like small scale hieroglyphs. And so we have this baked onto the back of the watch and you can store about like five gigs of data onto something the size of a quarter uh, with this technology. So it's really cool what it allows you to do, but then what was really challenging was like, okay, well, what do we, what do we put on there? You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's cool. Yeah. yeah. You could put all the books in the world or not all in the world, but you could put, you know, a library on there essentially and thousands of photos. So we, we spent a long time thinking about like what we wanted to put on there. And, uh, in the end, we also realized that we're not the experts on this. So, we, we talked with psychologists, people that had been to space, people uh, like museums, kind of like that do curations like this and uh, start to get a sense of what we would want to put on there and all with the theme of connection to home. So we broke it up into four sections and each section kind of represents these different connections. So we have one, which is a connection to, uh, to yourself so kind of like how you think of yourself and the connection you have or the relationship you have with yourself. The other is connection with other people. So how you like interact with the world. Uh, and then you have connection with earth. So kind of like how you connect with your environment around you and how that shapes your reality. So like exploring, for example, can, you know, shape how you see the world. Um, and then the last one is connection to space, because if you look at, Historically, since like the dawn of like humans, we've always looked up to the stars and tried to make sense of what that is up there. And like it, it, it makes us think. And it's something across cultures, you go to anywhere around the world and people have either a lore or history with, you know, the stars in some way. So, you know, there's tons of content baked into each of these four sections, but that's the general gist of what the memory disk represents. And are these pieces of literature or photographs or artwork or uh, give, give us a few examples maybe? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So it's a bit of everything. So for example, the connection to self, we put a, a children's book uh, called Le Petit Prince. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Yeah, of course. Oh, sure. So the idea with that was, well, one, we didn't want to just put like, I, you know, there's so many choices of what you could put to create a connection to self, but uh, we felt like children's stories are something that's been told for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. People, you know, kind of like educate uh, the next generation through storytelling. And Le Petit Prince is one of the most uh, widely published. Uh, and I think it's the most translated book, second to the Bible. So, 
it it just felt like a good fitting uh, book to put on there. And when people read, you also kind of reflect and there's a lot of like hidden symbolisms and people can read between the lines of something the author never even intended, but you kind of interpret it a certain way. So uh, that's kind of like a connection to self um, with connection to the world around you. We, we decided to put um, pictures and paintings from around the world. So uh, historical paintings, uh, paintings from different countries, because we felt that by putting art, you, you're also showing like how people interpret the world around them. So it's kind of uh, a really good representation of how different people around the world see Earth itself and and their interpretation of it. So j- just just for simplicity or, or explanation, like that, when it comes to say a painting, like let's say theoretically one of the paintings you picked was the mm-hmm. Mona Lisa. Is it like an engraving, a you know, uh, a, essentially like almost a, a high resolution line drawing of the Mona Lisa that can be seen, like in Blade Runner fashion with a microscope? It's it's really cool, actually. So yeah, it's exactly that, and we actually have the the Mona Lisa oh, on 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 it as well. Um, but <laughs> to give so you cool. an idea of scale with with this technology, so it's called nanofiche uh, technology, and basically we can nano engrave the entire Mona Lisa in, in like a good resolution and the painting will be half a millimeter wide. So if you zoom in under a microscope, you can see the whole painting. Yeah, sure. But it takes up like, I mean, it's like the size of a grain of rice uh, when you look at it from the back and it's all kind of holographic. So it really has a, a cool futuristic feel to it with all these engravings. So with the naked eye, you can't really see, uh, much you can kind of like make out the general shapes but as soon as you kind of like zoom in with a loop or a microscope you can uh, it's it, the the resolution is incredible on it you've unlocked a brand new fear in me uh, of possibly scratching this surface and, <laughs> and then just wiping out an entire like piece of our cultural lineage from its record <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> that's great that you said that because that's something we're we're like currently uh, refining is how to preserve this so the disc itself can last like tens of thousands of years on earth and then if it's on the moon it could last a million years because it's not gonna rust or really like oxidize in the same way Um, but you still want to wear this watch and not think about yeah scratching through the face of like a priceless artwork somewhere else in the world so uh, (laughs) we actually are sealing it uh, in sapphire so it's Oh, very cool. Basically, you have the nickel plate and then you're sealing it in sapphire so you can take a knife to it and you'll never have to worry about it. And it's also on the back, so it's less like front facing, but uh, it's it's thick enough that you're of glass that you're not going to have to worry about breaking or scratching it. You don't have to worry about the, the dreaded NATO strap rub. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> just, just slowly <laughs> polishing away history. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, look, I have, uh, we've, we've got you for at least a few more minutes here, but I have uh, more of a concrete question. We've talked about the connection to space, this sort of very interesting, high-minded, like now I want like, uh, I, I feel like I could buy just that plate as a piece of art uh, would be fascinating. But, you know, speaking <laughs> of the idea of being able to buy into this, any company at this point that makes something specific to space exploration has to expect a, a good portion of a certain type of niche enthusiast to want to own that product. This happened with um, a couple very notable Seiko chronographs in the last few years that have become quite collectible. 
and that sort of thing. And, and I'm wondering is with Monolith, I assume that this is a, a traditionally commercial project. It'll be something that interested folks could, could get on a list for. Maybe maybe it's limited. What's the sort of plan for those of us who maybe aren't planning to get to Mars necessarily, but, but do really think the watch is rad? Yeah, for sure. So basically, you know, our initial approach was to make a professional grade tool watch. So our focus uh, has been to make this thing space ready, not just something that's like designed or inspired by space. It's, it needs to work in those environments. So our primary focus has been a professional grade uh, monolith, but we're also going to be making a civilian uh, version, which is more or less the same, and we'll make it accessible so that people can live vicariously through that next chapter of space exploration, even if they're not going up there anytime soon. Right. And is it is it too early to comment on things like, you know, kind of size and pricing and that sort of thing? No, no, I, I'm happy to share it. Um, so it's 38 millimeters wide. It's 10.9 millimeters thick. And the pricing is going to be 87.50. Oh, so super wearable, despite being hyper modern and a price point that's what that puts it at less than a third of what Project One kind of hit the market at. Yeah, and that was an interesting balance too. If you think about, to be uh, fair, Project One was a very complicated. It was like if for people who are listening, please click the links in the show notes to understand what Project One because the two different projects, two different goals. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The project one really does kind of live in that in the realm of the ur work, and and I th- I think the I don't want to be unfair to the pricing the model pricing, uh they they did they had the different goals so to check them both out they're rad, yeah I think to speak on that too there's two different approaches uh, with project one it's like purely uh, like it's almost like a concept piece like a concept car, and then with monolith we're kind of going a, a functional approach to it and in terms of timing um you're obviously on the you know well as as we're talking here uh hopefully on the moon at this point but the the, for instance the prototype i'm wearing you when you sent it to me you said don't pay attention to the dial or hands they're kind of dummies you know you're still working on that um obviously there's refinements and things but what's what's kind of your timetable for for completing this um so we're going to be opening opening reservations this week and then uh for pre-order and then we're planning to do deliveries this summer. So like quarter oh quarter gosh. three, 2024 is is kind of what we're aiming for. So we're, we're more or less finalized. We're like tweaking some stuff. We have to go through certification, testing. Um, and we're actually, I'm going out to our assembly partners uh, in a couple of weeks to assemble the final like pre-production prototype. So kind of all the final tweaks and refinements, and then we can go into production with it. Wow. Amazing. Well, I mean, this, this has been such a fascinating discussion. Um, Karel, what, uh, if people want to learn more about this, uh, I'm assuming we'll send them to the website, uh, any other kind of places you want us, want us to post for, for notes, uh, maybe your Instagram or, or something. Yeah, sure. So our Instagram is just at barrel hand. Um, and we do a lot of updates there. So if you're into the nitty gritty engineering stuff that most people don't want to deep dive into. But if you're into that kind of stuff, I highly recommend checking out the Instagram because we talk about the the 3D printing that we're using, why we do the air core, how we design the air core for the chassis and all the nitty gritty stuff. I kind of just, we, we post it uh, as we're working on it uh, on Instagram so people can see the process and learn about each component. 
Cool. And then it's uh, barrelhand.com and, and there's all the details there as well. And I, I just have to throw this in because I, I had just learned in some digging through the website that that the name Barrelhand is actually kind of a interesting sort of uh, tweak on your name, which is uh, Karel Bashand. <laughs> yes. And it, 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 you kind of morphed that into Barrelhand, which I found that just, <laughs> just, just wonderfully... Uh, wonderfully whimsical and fun thank you thank you yeah and we're excited for the moon mission so if anyone wants to watch i i think it'll still be ready in orbit if anyone wants to watch the live stream they're gonna try to there's gonna be a camera that pops out of the lunar lander and tries to record its own descent as it's landing on the moon so whether it crashes or not however it works out uh it's it's worth tuning in just from a (laughs) a space history standpoint um and and like we were talking about in the beginning uh, on this lunar lander we have a carbon copy of the the memory disk so that will be preserved on the moon for for as long as the the moon is up there and then a carbon copy will be on every monolith case back Amazing. Well, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much. It really has. Uh, thank yeah, you thank guys. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's been a blast. Yeah, Thanks, make guys. Make sure everybody hit the show notes. We'll have all these links in there. Uh, obviously, you can't uh, speak out a link. Maybe someday we can nano engrave them into uh, <laughs> into some sort of a collection. But yeah, this is, uh, Carol, this has been awesome. Uh, obviously, best of luck with the future of the, the monolith, but uh, a real treat to talk to you and to get a look into an entirely kind of novel perspective on on watchmaking and and uh, the tech behind it hell yeah thanks so much guys really really appreciate it all right well we love having guests on the show we've had a couple of great ones recently and it's it's really a pleasure to add Corel bashan to that list what what a treat to have him on he's a really easy guy to talk to and clearly has a fascination for watches that extends like beyond just his avenue as far as uh, creating his own watches with barrel hand it was an absolute treat uh, we're recording this before we know the outcome of the lunar mission so be sure to hit the show notes for that that includes a link to the webcam so if you if you're really early on this one which will go up at like 6 a.m on the 22nd you might have a chance to still watch that live otherwise i'm sure there'll be links to capture it afterwards pretty exciting stuff all the way around and and i'm genuinely excited after uh, chatting with corral to see what the what the watch looks like and what it feels like when it's all done and, and ready to go so that's that's also exciting to have that you know on the horizon for uh, the summer of this year yeah he was a he was such a fun guest and and we thank him again for for coming on and, and look, stay tuned to this guy and, and to barrel hand, because I think there's some, totally uh, some big, really interesting stuff ahead for them. All right. Solid episode. Another one I'm really pumped about. Let's jump into a final notes and, and put a bow on it for this week. You want to go first? Yeah, sure. Um, as I mentioned, uh, during a wrist check, I've got the, uh, the monolith and I'm wearing it on, uh, one of the new straps from watches of espionage. Uh, he has a, a strap shop in addition to his, uh, his fun, uh, dispatches that he that he writes. Uh, the new strap is called the Glomar Explorer, which is a, a fun wink at kind of an old uh, CIA project from from years ago. And and you can read more about that uh, in the link uh, to the strap on our on our show notes. But uh, this is a strap that that he developed that kind of mimics the form factor of the Tudor Pelagos FXD strap. So it's a hook and loop style single piece strap that threads through. And then kind of folds back on itself after you pass it through the keeper. Um, it's identical in length to the FXD strap. It's uh, I would say it's almost a little more robustly built. There's a, there's a lot of extra stitching around the the hook and loop patches, which I think keep it a little bit more secure. 
I guess the hardware, I don't really consider it a buckle, but the hardware that you pass the strap through uh, is not dissimilar to the FXD one. It's a little more squared off, but it's kind of neat. It's got the the Watches of Espionage logo engraved on one side, and then on the back, there's a little wink to his kind of tagline, which is use your tools. And um, as of now, I believe it comes in black and admiralty gray. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've got the the monolith on a black strap, but he also sent me one of the gray ones, which I have been wearing on the on the Pelagos uh, when we were camping this past weekend. Yeah, I really like it. I like the style of strap anyway, and I think it's nice to have some options other than you know strictly a NATO strap. And I think what what he's done with the Glomar Explorer is he's kind of taken that form factor and then he's added a, a key device, which is the keeper. It's a woven keeper, so it kind of you can tuck the Velcroed end under the the keeper and it really makes all the difference it kind of keeps the the flap from catching on clothing and and Mm -hmm. kind of coming loose and ripping loose when you're wearing it with uh with it you know a sweater or a jacket or something and i guess it probably also helps where like if your wrist isn't the perfect size so that the the tail just makes it to the end of the hook and loop patch yeah then you have some flexibility for just keeping it where like if you if your wrist is a little smaller and maybe it it has a bit of a hang right that way you could you know tuck that in so it's not just kind of holding open and you know wrist shots or or bothering you throughout the day i think these look incredible 20 and 22 millimeters 58 bucks uh these i think these uh, it's fair to say that these are sort of the same sort of thing as like say our tgn natos they're designed to help support watches of espionage right but 58 dollars if you compare to what you'd spend for um some of the other great sort of nylon straps on the market including say replacing one or buying one from tudor not mm-hmm. an unreasonable price point. You know, I would I would love definitely like to check the, check one of these out at some point. I think they're really slick. I love the gray. Obviously, it'd be, you know, speaking selfishly, it'd be rad to see them in 21 as well for stuff <laughs> like the Pelagos 39, the Migo, yeah. the Longines. But definitely makes a ton of sense in 20 and 22. So, yeah, I, I was super impressed with the previous straps uh, that, that they put out. And uh, I think these ones look awesome. So glad to hear that you're enjoying it. Yeah, good stuff. All right. What do you have today? Yeah, mine today is actually a YouTube video from a buddy of mine, Gajan Balin. I met Gajan at the Leica event, the celebration of photography, uh, usually in the fall. And uh, Gajan's a Toronto-based uh, photographer and YouTuber and sort of photography mindset guru guy that does these uh, all sorts of different sort of travel-based stuff and, and stuff for learning photography. And there's a lot to catch up on there with, with Gajan because he's got a uh, a lot of things on the go. But one of the things that he does is he'll review new cameras that are popular to a certain type of photographer. And that includes the brand new Fujifilm X106, or the VI. Yeah, I, I kind of brought this up because as soon as this camera was released, it kicked off a conversation in the Slack about these sorts of cameras. So the, the Fujifilm X100 series has been around for some time. I owned a T, which I believe is the second or the third series. And then obviously the five is is where they really hit a huge stride. It became very difficult to buy that camera. It was always kind of out of stock. It was kind of always compared in the same sentences as like a great enthusiast multi-purpose camera that was well-made with good image quality right in there with uh, the Ricoh GR3, which I recommend all the time to people. And of course, if you have the budget and it fits your needs, the Leica Q uh, platform is excellent as well. But I think these ones kind of stride the line between something that's a little bit more on the point and shoot side, like the Ricoh, 
or a little bit more on the sort of almost at times needlessly premium line like the Leica. Yeah. And and kind of sits in the middle. It is more expensive than the 5 and that's going to make the 5 a very sort of compelling secondhand purchase or or NOS purchase moving forward. But if you need uh, more and better and, and all that kind of stuff from the platform, I think these still offer a ton of everyday useful, including travel-sized camera um, in a package that they just kind of keep refining. And I, I watched a bunch of the videos. David Immel from uh, uh, MKBHD, he has another fantastic video, but I really enjoyed Gajan's look at it. It's just a first look. It's not a full review. He'll have another very, very deep sort of consideration of the camera once he's used it more. But I think if you want a starting point on what's become a fairly common question for Jason and I, which is like, I'd like to get into photography. Where do I start Yeah, with a camera? And genuinely, the answer is like, start with your phone. But if you're going to, if you want to make the leap off of the phone uh, to a dedicated platform, that's very sort of tuned to the traditions of photography. I think the Fujifilm is an excellent option. And they make a lot of lovely cameras. And, and where this maybe goes a step further than a Ricoh is you have adapters for the lens. So you can have a teleconverter. You can have a wide converter. Um, it, it does a few more things. I'm not saying it necessarily is a better camera. That's such like a nebulous concept now. Photos that won every award in the world were made on cameras older, weaker, less resolution than the stuff we have today. Yeah. So it always comes down to your personal creativity, but as a tool for that creativity and for the fascination of cameras and photography, I think these are, are a really interesting platform. I think these, this would be like an excellent camera for you, Jason. Like if you wanted to move in back into a small digital carry on, I know that you do a great job with your phone, so it's probably unnecessary, but in that same vein as the, what was the Nikon you had? The DF. Yeah, I still have that. I still pull it out from time to time. That's such a cool camera. The DF. Yeah. The, 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 the X100 has been kind of on my radar for a long time. I remember a friend that we used to camp with, bringing it back to that, many years ago used to, he, he had like the first generation and he just, he loved that camera and he he always was trying to kind of talk me into to getting one because I was still carrying around kind of an SLR and, and um, yeah, these have always been compelling and I've kind of been, haven't been paying attention to the camera world for the past year or two. And and so when this popped up and you put that link in, I started looking at this and, you know, it looks identical to the first generation, uh, X 100 really, um, which is kind of refreshing. It's kind of nice to see. And, th- and then they're just sort of making improvements to it. But, uh, yeah, you're right. It, it, it really is a compelling camera, um, to, to consider. And, and if I ever do decide to kind of wade back into carrying a dedicated camera, this is one that, uh, cause I, I just can't, I can't get into, um, or I can't get around to, I guess, ponying up for kind of the like of money at this point. Um, so this feels like a good alternative. Obviously, the other plus you get with the uh, with the Fuji film is its native thirty five millimeter. Oh, okay. Whereas the Q is twenty eight. Huh. And does it is that is there a huge difference there? No, not really. Does it matter? Yeah, it could matter, right? Yeah. If you if you get deep into the Q conversation with people, most people are, don't ask for more resolution or different batteries or better this or that. They want a version that's either 35 or 50. Yeah. Yeah. That seems to be the big ask. And with this one, you can teleadapt to 50 and you can wide adapt to, to, I think it's 28 or 24. So you'd still have those options. Personally, I think if you start at 35, you might just stay at 35. I could see going <laughs> to 50 if you want to shoot some portraits, right? Yeah. 
I think there's a ton of camera here. And, and I'm also pretty interested to see what happens to the X100V, the five. Mm-hmm. One, because they were difficult to get because production was more limited and they're made in Japan, to my understanding. The 106 is going to be made in China. Everybody is hypothesizing that this is going to increase production capabilities so that the camera is not in constant uh, demand uh, or unbuyability to a certain extent. Yeah, um, I, It will be interesting to see how purists kind of maybe connect with the 5 based on its roots and where it's made. And But there are some pretty straight high-line benefits and changes, modifications to the, the new platform. So I always find it really interesting. And, you know, I've said for a long time that whatever hobby you're into, photography will only make it better. Mm-hmm. That's why it's like it's not necessarily the best hobby just to get into cameras for camera's sake. It can be if that's if that's what you're fascinated by. It's like getting into trains. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's expensive. Yeah. It's detailed. It's going to take up a lot of your life and space in your home <laughs> and that kind of thing. But as a modification of whatever your hobby is, let's say you love to hike or ski. Photography, right. great. Let's say you love watches. Great. Cars, great. Uh, whatever you can name. Let's say you love board games. Yeah. Photography. Yeah, yeah. And, and a great camera will only expand that. It, it kind of enriches the experience. It's like the greatest piggyback uh parasite sort of hobby um and and i you know we we're always pretty clear that like if if your phone is doing what you need it to do stick with your phone don't go crazy and buy gear you don't need don't don't upgrade because you think it's necessarily good like understand what what might actually quote unquote make your photography better yeah but if you want to get into that that level of taking it a little bit more seriously i think that you always have to have the x100 series on your radar and with a new one, it immediately popped off in the photography channel on Slack. So I figured I'd throw in Gajan's video. I'm a huge fan of this guy. I really, really like him. I really enjoy his work. Church and Street is a really interesting, evolving platform for learning about photography and and also all of the ancillary skills that go with it. The social skills, the planning, the travel, all these things. I think he, he gives a very interesting sort of perspective on all of this. So I, I highly recommend it. And it's a, a, a treat to have him sorted out. If you saw my review of the my uh, week on the wrist with the Seiko SPB 381 GMT, yeah. that was shot by Gajan in my living room of my previous home. Oh, Just a, a great okay. guy, very talented. And uh, like I said, it, it's, it's fun to see him talk about something that's a little bit more accessible than some of the gear he normally uses. So yeah. with the X106... Uh, I wouldn't say run out and buy one immediately unless you've been sitting waiting for a five. Oh, yeah. But it, it's worth knowing about if you're going to put yourself in the market to spend a couple grand on a camera. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm not sure I'm going to run out and buy this, but I will watch this uh, this review. And it, you've kind of inspired me to dust off the DF and maybe put a... Yeah. I've got, I think I've got an old uh, manual focus, like a 28 millimeter lens or something I should throw oh, on Perfect. There. It makes it kind of a small platform to carry around. And it's, it's a pretty light camera. So yeah, I think the, the other one that we have to get in your hands at some point is, is the GR3X, the 40 millimeter. Oh Rico. yeah. Yeah. Right. It's like everything you want from a phone. Yeah. Taken to 30, not 11. Yeah. Wow. Like the resolution's there. The speed is there. It's super subtle and tiny. And the, all the all the stuff that's kind of annoying about some systems, the batteries, the charging, the this, the that, it's all kind of minimized. Yeah. So it's like a little tiny camera that just gets out of your way. You can definitely shoot like a phone. And if you start to really lean into certain types of editing, the photos that come out of the camera 
just offer such a latitude for creativity. And there's no question the Fujifilm can do the same. Yeah. It's just, you know, Google both or look at the show notes for both. I'll include, you'll know what I mean by the difference in the platform. Sure. The, the, the Ricoh is just, it, they packed a lot into the size of a traditional point and shoot, basically, maybe point and shoot plus point two, something like yeah. that. Whereas the Fujifilm looks like something from 1978, <laughs> right. uh, you know, yeah. and, and it's gorgeous and it's great and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But two, two kind of different scenarios. All right. That was a fun show. Man, we're getting really lucky with guests lately. Oh, yeah, totally. And we've got a few on the books for the next couple of months. So, yeah, stay tuned. Well, as always, thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to subscribe to the show to get into the show notes, get the comments for each episode, or consider supporting the show directly and nab yourself a brand new TGN signed NATO and or access to the Slack, please visit thegraynado.com. Music Throat is, of course, a siesta by Jazzar via the free music archive. And we leave you with this quote from Roman Payne, who said, I wandered everywhere through cities and countries wide, and everywhere I went, the world was on my side. Thank you.